Well, good morning, and uh, we're going to be turning again to the book of Romans, chapter 8, for our Bible reading today. And uh, we're mainly looking at verses 18 to 27, but I'm going to take up the reading just at the end of verse 17, and and you'll see why uh, later on. Verse 17 says, And if children then heirs... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts as we think about it uh, today. Now, there are two things in particular that uh, need to be emphasized, that I want to speak to you about uh, from from the passage. And the first one is suffering. And you will see also in verses 22, 23, and 26 that a kind of allied word, the word groaning, comes in that is uh, associated with that. And the second thing I want to speak to you about is, is glory. Suffering and glory, both of these things, and there is a connection between them uh, that we have to think about today. So the first thing I'd like to say to you, um, and that the passage tells us about suffering, is this. And this is from verse 17, that suffering is part and parcel, it's integral to being a Christian. You see that? It says, provided... We suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Now, there are many types of suffering. We know that. But there is a particular type of suffering that is associated with belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ, with committing yourself to him, with taking a stand for Christ, of having belief in him and deciding to follow him. It is being with him. And if you're with him, you will suffer with him. And if you suffer with him, 
there is a straight line that is drawn between that suffering with him and being glorified with him. Now, Jesus suffered. We all know that. We all know about the crucifixion and the death of Christ. So many verses in the Bible bear that out. Peter writes about this. He says that Christ suffered for sins, the just for us, the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Isaiah the prophet reminds us that Christ was wounded for our transgressions and that he was bruised for our iniquities. And we should never forget the suffering of Christ, the cross of Christ, the message of Calvary, the word of the cross is absolutely central to the gospel and to the way in which we can be in a right relationship with God. We, we can't forget that. And that is why week by week, including this evening, we meet to remember the Lord in his death and partaking of the Lord's Supper, just to focus our attention on the centrality and on the importance of the suffering of Christ. The apostles suffered. We saw that picture there, didn't we, of the, the Colosseum in Rome. It's not just a tourist place. Let, let us remember what happened in the Colosseum in Rome. That was the place where Christian men, women, and children, for the entertainment of the spectators of Rome, were thrown to animals and died, and the crowds chanted and cheered. It was in the streets of Rome at night when they didn't have the floodlights that our stadiums have, that they covered Christian people in tar and set them on fire so that they could watch their chariot races. That's what happened in Rome. That's what happened to our fellow brothers and sisters, the early Christians who suffered for the name of Christ. Because that's what Jesus had taught them. And that's what the Lord Jesus teaches us about suffering. He teaches us this. If anybody wants to follow me, if anybody wants to come after me, you'll have to do as I am doing. You'll have to take up your cross and follow me. You'll have to be prepared to suffer for me and the gospel and have that as the priority in your life. That's what it means to stand with me. The world is going to kill me upon a cross. And it may very well do that to you as well. That was the message of Christ. They expected that and they signed up for that. And that's a massive challenge to me. I'm sure it's a massive challenge to all of us today. About how important the Lord Jesus is in our lives. And what our whole concept of suffering with Christ is. And our devotion to our Savior is. Somehow or, or another, in the Western church, this, this idea has been embraced that my faith is a comfort blanket. That my faith is an insurance policy against 
difficulties and problems and harm that takes place in life, that because I belong to Christ, I can kneel at the bedside of my children and pray that they will be protected and nothing will ever happen bad to my family. And the problem is that if anything does, then our our faith is shaken and we can't understand it and we begin to have doubts because that's the way that we've come to accept what it means to be a Christian, that God will protect me physically and materially and I will always get promotion and I will always do well. And it's a fallacy. The reality is that there is suffering and that there are groanings And these take place now. In fact, the point that he's making is this. That the willingness to suffer for Christ is one of the tests. One of the acid tests that you are a true believer. And not just a pretend believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first point I wanted to make. Suffering and glory. Secondly, I want to just say something now about this this straight line of connection that's drawn between the both of them. Because that's what it says. Provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Now that again was true for the Lord Jesus. You remember the story in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus after the resurrection? The discouraged, disconsolate disciples, they thought the bubble had burst, everything was finished and gone. And Jesus said to them, didn't you know how foolish of you not to realize that the scriptures taught that the Christ had to suffer and then enter into his glory? Peter writes about this in the first chapter of his letter. He talks about the ancient prophets and how they, they carefully looked into the times and the circumstances of the coming of Christ and they tried to work out the suffering and then the glory that would follow. And these two things go hand in hand. You don't get the glory Unless there is the suffering first. There is a principle that is there. Yes, there may be a lot of suffering. But there will be in the future, in heaven, tremendous glory for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point, of course. The people that he's been writing to. The whole point that he's been building up chapter upon chapter as we've studied is about those who are now through faith in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who know God, who have the power of the gospel within their hearts. They're in a right relationship with God and and they have the prospect of the glory of heaven before them. And only they have the prospect of the glory of heaven for those who have faith in Christ. And here's the thing. Look at how it puts it in verse 18. It is impossible to compare our present suffering with the tremendous nature of the future glory that is to come. It is absolutely impossible. 
Now, when it talks about glory here, this is not the kind of passing glory that we often think about, the glory of popularity, the glory of fame, the glory of people chanting your name and applauding you. It's not that glory at all. You can't compare the glory of heaven with anything else upon this earth. Now, now we know what a comparison is, don't we? It's really a form of illustration. You take something, you compare it with something else to help people understand and to help people appreciate what is going on. If you look further down in the passage, at verse number 22, there's a comparison there. It uses the comparison of childbirth. There's a situation, it says it's just like childbirth. It seems terrible at the time, but at the end of it, there's joy. Now, what he's saying here is this. There, there are no words. There is no equivalent thing. There is no metaphor or whatever, simile, that I can dredge up that is adequate to give an idea of how tremendous the glory of heaven is going to be. Now, the Bible is able to contrast So, for instance, it will tell us it's a place where there's no pain and where there's no suffering and where there's no tears and where there's no death. And it will make those contrasts. But there are actually no comparisons. There's no yardstick that I can can measure up the wonder of the glory of heaven. So, if you were to think about the best experience that you've ever had in your life. If you were to think about the most wonderful place that you have ever been to in your life. If you were to think about the richest or the most precious relationship that you have enjoyed in your life. And you were to multiply that by a hundred by a million, by ten million times, and try and imagine that, you still would not be able to come close to the tremendous nature of the glory that awaits the child of God. The person who has placed their faith in Christ. The tremendous glory of heaven beyond suffering for the child of God. That is the nature of what we're talking about. So, there is one thing that he does here. And it's this. He, he tries to give us a little bit of a hint. He, he just uses one little tiny aspect of something to try and help us grasp it uh, to some extent. But before we get to that, I want to just quote to you a verse that Paul used in Second Corinthians 4. Again, just to try and make this point, where he said this, that our light and our momentary troubles are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that surpasses them all. You know, and if we are Christ's, this is our hope. You know, that word comes up, doesn't it, in our passage several times. That is the hope of the Christian. It is the hope of glory. That is our inheritance. 
to be with Christ in heaven, to share His glory, and to see that glory, and to experience it. That is the hope in the midst of suffering and of groanings that the Christian person has. And if you're not Christ's, that hope is not yours. And that inheritance does not belong to you. Only a frightening looking forward to an anticipation of the judgment of God. So we need to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his death to have the hope of glory in our hearts. So let's look at this little glimpse that he gives us. And and what he uses here is he talks about creation. And I'm just going to try and skim over this fairly briefly. And he talks about creation in verses 19 to 23. And, And there are four things in these verses that he says about creation. Now, of course, we have to kind of define this a little bit before we get to them. And, and, and the first point to make, of course, is, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about Mother Nature. It doesn't talk about evolution. It talks about creation four times over in these few verses. The, the world we live in is not random. The world we live in, according to the Bible, does not happen by chance. It just, in all its complexity and wonder and color and variety, it just didn't happen to, to take place. Contrary to what the majority think, there was an architect, there was a designer, there was a builder, there was a creator, and that creator is God. And God is the creator. And everything that we see around us, including ourselves, is the creation. But in in terms of these verses here, when the word creation is used, it is actually referring to everything made apart from humanity. And the reason that is, is because it's talking about the effect that saved, redeemed humanity, the, the children of God, will have on the rest of the creation. So that, that's what's being meant when, when we go down it. Now, here are the four things, hopefully fairly briefly, so that I retain your attention. So number one from verse 19, it says there that creation waits. Creation all around us, you know, the trees, the forests, the beaches, the mountains, everything that is part of creation is is waiting with eager longing on tiptoe with with its neck stretched out looking eagerly for something. Maybe you can't articulate that, but this is the reality of our created world. It is anticipating something. And what is it? Something is going to happen one day. It's when the saints come marching in. It's when the people of God are revealed. It's the revealing of the sons of God on the day of Christ's return, when he returns in glory with his people. Creation is waiting for that day. Why is it waiting for that day? Second thing, verse 20. Not only is creation waiting, but creation was subjected to futility. Now, what does that mean? This is a reference to the early chapters of Genesis. To the consequences of the sin of Adam. 
This is what happened because of the fall. A curse was pronounced by God, which affected all of creation. Death entered. And even the very topography of our world, the thorns and the, and the thistles and the calamity and the disasters, and all of that is part of the futility of creation. And this is an explanation, actually, for much of what happens in our world today. The disasters, the famines, the droughts, the storms. It's all part of that bondage to corruption that's mentioned in verse 21. There's a, there's a sense of vanity and meaningless and futility and the world is winding down rather than winding up. That's the idea. And God did this. But, but look at that wonderful word at the end of verse 20. When he did it, he did it in hope. He did it in hope. And that, of course, that's the wonderful way that these early chapters of Genesis play out. That despite all of that, inserted there is the hope of the Savior who, who will come. One day a Savior will come who will reverse the curse. The Son of God will appear. And as we sang earlier on, you know, that a second Adam will walk the earth who will redeem. And in hope, despite the futility, the message of the gospel and the message of Christ is introduced to us. Third thing, verse 21. Creation will be set free. It's in this bondage. This corruption. But when the children of God come, a change is coming. It will be set free from all of that. And, and this world of ours will change one day. When Christ returns and reigns upon this earth, as he will, as scripture is very clear on the coming of the Lord, what will happen is this, to quote Isaiah, the lion will lie down with the lamb. Ah, you're not going to see that today. I was reading a book this week about a guy who ran a, a marathon in Kenya, you know, through a safari park, and they had to get the helicopters down and guards along the way, you know, to, to, to get the lions out the road. If you put a lamb next to a lion, you know what's going to happen. When Christ returns, all this kind of viciousness and uh, nature, red and tooth and claw, it's all going to disappear. The the desert will bloom like a, like a rose. There will be no more violence. There will be no more famine. There will be no more drought. There will be no more disaster. There will be no more violence. Creation will be freed from all of that. And look at the final thing that's said about creation. Verse 22. Creation has been groaning. You know, in part, that describes all the ecological disasters. You know, this world, as we know, is a wonderful place. But it's nowhere near as beautiful as it once was when it came fresh from the hand of God. And it's nowhere near as beautiful as it is going to be when it is freed, when the childbirth groanings cease and, and things are freed when Christ comes and when his people come with him in glory. The rainforest, the barrier reef, the great savannas, the ice caps, 
All of that is held in this bondage to corruption at the moment. But that will give rise to joy. It's all held in bondage because of the sin of humanity. We are the cause of all of that. And yet one day when that full redemption comes, there will be a release when the saints come marching in. Now, I'm going to take this word groaning here. And I'm just going to say a little bit more about that. Because um, the word groaning is actually mentioned three times in this passage. The first groaning has to do with creation. The second groaning, verse 23, has to do with ourselves. We who have the first fruit of the Spirit, even those of us who have God's Spirit, Christian people. And the idea of first fruits takes us back to a a festival in the Old Testament, a harvest kind of festival that they annually had. The very first of the the crops that came up, they, they offered them to God. As, as, as thanksgiving, but also as a, a promise in anticipation of the full harvest that was going to follow from God. And the fact that we have the Spirit now in measure is, is a promise of everything in glory that is going to come. But even we who have the first fruit of the Spirit, Christian people, we groan. We groan as well. And we groan because of our limitations and of our failures and our sinfulness. And we groan because of our concerns and our troubles. Because we know that our full salvation, if you like, has not come yet. You notice that a couple of words are used here in verse number 23. He talks about adoption as sons. And he talks about the redemption of our bodies. Now, we've already learned in this passage about the reality of adoption. We've been adopted as as Christians into the family of God. But it's not really full adoption until we're with the Lord. We know that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, but our bodies have not been redeemed. There is a fullness to that glory that is to come. And we know that we haven't that yet. And so there is this groaning that is part of this. And yet we have this hope. Verse 24. For in this hope we are saved. You know, when we're saved, at that point, we're given hope in the glory that shall be. So two two necessary questions, I think, at this point. The first one is this, as we think about verse 24. Am I saved? Are are you saved? Someone asked the question one day of, of the Apostle Paul, didn't they? What must I do to be saved? Well, the answer he gave is exactly the same as the one that we give today. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever calls for help, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. Do you have the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the first question that we need to answer today. 
because it is only those who are saved, as it says here, who have this hope. Second question. Do you have hope in the midst of a suffering world? In the midst of the groans of your life? Hope of glory? Hope of heaven? Hope of being with Christ? It's only the Christian who has the hope of glory. Anything other than that is just vain, wishful thinking. Conning yourself. Delusion. The Bible is very clear. It's only those who are saved who have hope of heaven one day. And, and those who are saved are those who stand with Christ, who follow Christ, who are prepared to suffer for Christ, that they might experience the glory of Christ. I can speak to Christians today. Is it possible that we might have lost our perspective? Perhaps we have been drawn into this spiral of, of discouragement and of feeling overwhelmed. Let's remember that hope, as it says here, is not what you see now. That's not hope. Hope is what you patiently wait for, but that you don't see now. And remember, that there is a third groan. I've only spoken about two of them. The final groaning in this passage, it relates to the Spirit of God. So many wonderful things have been said about God's Spirit in this chapter. And here, here is another one. It says this, that when we don't know in our difficulties and in our troubles and in our groanings, when, when we just don't know what to do and we don't know what to say and we don't know where to turn and we don't even know what to pray for or how to say prayers, when we're at the end of ourselves, God's Spirit, He groans as He prays on our behalf. He prays and he intercedes with groanings that are too deep, too deep even for words, such as the intensity, such as the concern, such as the feeling, such as the love of the prayers of God's Spirit for the children of God in the midst of our difficulties. What a massive encouragement that is. With all this conviction and care, that comes from God on behalf of his people. Never forget that. Take that to heart this morning. Be reassured by this Christian. That when, when you think you can't pray for yourself. You don't know what to do. And you're not sure if anyone else cares. Or anyone else can pray for you. That God's spirit. With these deep groanings. Is interceding. On your behalf. Now we're going we're gonna to pray just now. But this is the time at the end of the message when, when we really all ought to be coming to the point of response to what God is saying to us today. Particularly to the questions that he's asking 
hope, being saved, suffering the glory of heaven. If we suffer with him, then we will also be glorified with him. Let's reflect on that as we come to pray and then sing our final hymn. Lord, thank you for this passage with all its relevance and its power to come into our hearts and dispel much of the mixed thinking that seems to scramble our minds as we we listen to the attitudes and voices of our society. Thank you for the clarity of your word. And Lord, help us as we think about these concepts of, of suffering and glory to get your perspective on that. Help us now to respond for the Christians with a sense of, of joy, of hope, being encouraged by the hope of glory, by the intercession of the Spirit of God. For those who are not Christians, they need to be saved. They need to stand with Christ so that they can have hope and not a fearful looking forward to of judgment. So Lord, we commend your word to all our hearts. In our Lord Jesus' name, amen.